So if you're a guest here, we are working through one of the books of the New Testament, 1 Corinthians, a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to his friends back in Corinth. Uh, he planted that church. He's heard news about that church, and things are not going well. There are some significant issues that are kind of blowing the church up, and so he's writing to address those issues that are compromising the church's unity in Christ and their effectiveness for Christ. Um, they're, they're fighting. They're fighting over leaders and who's the best leader, none of which are Christ. They're fighting with each other, taking each other to court. The, uh, the morals of culture that used to be part of their lives are still a part of their lives. And there's a lot of confusion, a lot of confusion. They, they've, got it, they've got it wrong. It reminds me of this picture I saw this week of this USC cheerleader. So uh, look at the picture here and I'll just kind of walk you through it. So USC is playing Texas. You can see by the, the posture of the Texas players, they have just scored a touchdown. So let me say it again because it's early. So Texas just scored a touchdown, but there's that USC cheerleader with touchdown, right? So it gets better. Look at the girl next to her. So she's like this going, I can't believe this is happening. I'm gonna pretend like I don't see it happening and maybe if she sees me in this position, she'll get her hands down. The next two are just going, are you kidding me? <laughs> so, so just think of that image and this is what's going on at Corinth. They're, they're cheering for the wrong things. They're cheering for the wrong leaders. So they're all about guys. Paul says, we're mere human beings. We are servants of Christ. Paul, Apollos, Peter, cheering for the wrong leaders. They're cheering for the wrong team. Not God's team, but the enemy's team. And so there's a guy in the church who's a professed follower of Christ who actually is doing things that would make his pagan neighbors blush. He is sleeping with his stepmother. Okay? They're on the wrong team, cheering for the wrong team as they sue each other and they bring themselves to a place where Paul says, you're completely defeated when you're not working out your stuff in the context of the family of God and taking it to the courts. They're, they're confused as they, they, they kind of add Jesus to their former way of life. So a little temple worship where prostitution was involved in that worship mixed in with going to church with God's people on the Lord's Day, on Sunday, it all seemingly worked for them. He says, whoa, 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 wait, wait a minute. You're, you're cheering for the wrong things. You're involved in the wrong things. You are confused. And so as we get to chapter seven, verse one, he moves from these problems that he's been addressing in chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6 to the questions. So chapter 7, verse 1, and you can turn there, begins with these words. Now for the matters you wrote about. Now that's the pivot. Now he's going to field questions that they've sent to Paul, who planted their church and spent a, a year and a half pastoring them. Here are the questions we have, and now he goes from the problems to the questions. So as you're turning, grab your Bible, turn into 1 Corinthians. So we're in the New Testament, right? Towards the back of our Bibles, after the book of Romans, the letter to Romans, before 2 Corinthians. Grab the table of contents if you need it. So I want to encourage you again, as we're going through books of the Bible, we do that regularly, but not all the time. But whenever we come here, get a Bible on your way in, and I want you to become more familiar with looking in God's Word, learning how to read it on your own, and grow 
on your own. So get in the word here, chapter 7, verse 1. Now, as you're um, looking at the chapter, some of the questions that may be coming out of this chapter would be things like, can Christians engage in sexual activity? Is that okay for Christians? And then specifically, is that a good thing for people who are married? Or would it be better for us just to abstain from that so that we could pursue God more fully? What should I do if I'm married to someone who's not a Christ follower? Should I stay in that marriage? Is divorce allowed? Is divorce preferred? How should we think about singleness? Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? What about the widows and the widowers if they want to get remarried? Is that okay or should they stay single? These are some of the questions. Now look at chapter 7. There's 40 verses. And let me just kind of give you the, the overlay of where this goes. The first 16 verses are all about questions that have to deal with marriage and divorce and remarriage, okay? Then from 25 to 40, the last 16 verses, that all has to do with the singles in the church. Those who've never been married, he'll refer to them as virgins, and those who are widows or widowers, so singles. And then between the two, verses 17 through 24, he's going to tie those two sections together and say, whatever your, your situation in life, make sure that you remain in that situation and live for Christ there and make that your focus more than trying to change your circumstances and to change your status and to file for some kind of transfer to a better life. That's how this chapter works. So we'll get into the section on marriage, verses 1 through 5. Now for the matters you wrote about. It's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But since sexual immorality is incurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband in the same way. The husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control." Now, when he gets to seven and deals with the questions that are there, all of a sudden we realize that he's dealing with the exact opposite of the problem that he just addressed in chapter six. So in chapter six, the mentality is you can have sex with whoever, whenever. All right, so there's that kind of license and unrestrained sexuality. In chapter seven, he's responding some, to some teaching that's crept into the church that said actually celibacy. Sexual abstinence is to be preferred, and that's actually the way that you can grow closer to God. And so this asceticism, these ascetic teachers who believe that the body was fundamentally marred and evil, that these teachers are the ones that he's quoting, and it's probably in quotes in your Bible. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That's the teaching that he's confronting. So chapter six, just wildness when it comes to sexual activity, all right? In chapter seven, oh, if you're spiritual, if you're a Christ follower, if you're really a Christian, you don't have any sexual activity. You deny these things, 
All right, so that's where we're at. So the correction to what was going on in chapter 6 with sexuality gone awry is not no more sex. Paul's making it clear. No, it's sex within a Christian marriage. That's the place and that's the person, our spouse. So the implication, verse 5, is don't withhold it. Don't deprive is the word, which literally means don't defraud, don't cheat your spouse. This is your marital duty, he says in verse 3. He gives them one exception, perhaps, that they might want to pursue a time of abstinence. And it would be mutually agreed upon for a limited time for a clear purpose, to pray and to draw closer to God, maybe to pray and seek God's direction in their lives, in their marriage. But after that limited time, you come back together, speaking about you come back physically, sexually back together because that is normative in Christian marriage. And he grounds the teaching here in this fundamental principle that each are um, equal here, have authority, not over their body, but over their spouse's body, and each are to yield their body to their spouse. So in chapter 6, he says, hey, don't forget, you've been bought with a price. Your body that the Holy Spirit lives in, that is now the temple of God, is, is owned by God. So your body belongs to God, and here in chapter 7, he says, and if you're married, your body belongs to your spouse. Now, we kind of miss how they heard it. Because this kind of equality and mutual equality that he's talking about here in these opening verses is fundamentally different than the practices of the day in Roman culture in the first century. So even within the Jewish community, when the rabbis are writing and we read about those writings in the Midrash, these explanations on the Old Testament law, Genesis through Deuteronomy, they would say about a person in a marriage who does not want their spouse to touch them, right? That there, there are fines and there are penalties. And when you read through what the rabbi said, the penalty for the woman was at least twice the penalty of the husband. And so the, what Paul's doing here is significant. And what he's teaching here is a call to yield to each other in love. And one of the things he's doing is he's confronting this false teaching that would say, hey, this is physical, this is the body, this can't be a good thing, and this can't move us towards growing as spiritual people who live and walk with God. He's saying, no, actually, you can be involved sexually within your marriage and grow spiritually. The two are not mutually exclusive. And when he talks about coming back together, lest you not fall into temptation or because of your lack of self-control, we understand one of the great gifts of sex in marriage is just that. There is this protective nature from temptation, from lack of self-control. But it's so much more than that. In fact, there's a whole book in the Bible, the Song of Solomon, that goes in great detail. In fact, it is so graphic in the sense of its poetry. It's not graphic in the sense of, of anything lewd like that, but just this lavish poetry that celebrates marital love that the, that the, 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 the Christian leaders over the centuries didn't know what to do with it and said it's just all metaphor. It's just all talking about our relationship with God. It's really not talking about marriage because, No, actually, there's a book in the Bible that celebrates marital love, 
And as it does, it reminds us of the greater picture because our marriage has always been meant to be a window into the greater relationship of Christ in his church, of God with his people. So it's this great gift that brings pleasure. It's this great gift that builds and strengthens and protects and blesses us often with children. And so there's no room for games in Christian marriage where we use sex as a weapon. No form of abuse is thinkable as we defer to one another in love. Now in verse six, Paul says, I say this as a a concession, what he's about to say, not as a command. And what's the concession? I wish, verse seven, that all of you were as I am, single. But each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that gift. So whether you're single like Paul or married, It's all a gift from God. So now he starts moving in and talking to the married and the unmarried, and it goes back and forth, and I'm gonna hopefully help you understand who he's talking to specifically as he goes through this. So verse 10, to the married I give this command, not I but the Lord. So he'll say this, not I but the Lord, or the Lord not I, and it makes you at the, at the beginning think, so are there like two levels of authoritative teaching? So there's Christ's teaching, the Lord's teaching, and then there's Paul's, like Christ for sure, that's right, we've got to abide by that. But Paul, he's just a man, and that's probably just opinion, and I can pick and choose. That's not what he's doing. The Bible tells us that all scripture and Paul's writing scripture here is God-breathed and it's profitable for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Peter in his letters say that Paul's writings are hard to understand, but he talks about them equivocally with the Old Testament scriptures. So Paul's not setting up this tier of authority. There's Christ's teaching, there's my teaching, and there's probably some other, no, it's not. What he's basically doing is giving us a footnote and saying what I'm about to say references the teachings of Christ or what I'm about to say is not found in Christ's teaching but I'm going to give you this teaching all right so verse 10 again to the married I give this command a wife must not separate from her husband but if she does she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and a husband must not divorce his wife I believe from verse 12 that 10 and 11 is speaking to people who are married where both spouses are believers. Why do I say this? Because listen what it says next. To the rest, I say this. I, not the Lord. This is coming from me. I'm not footnoting a teaching of Christ. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer. See, now it's a mixed marriage. One believes, one does not yet believe. And she is willing to live with him. He must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who's not a believer and he's willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they're holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So, 10-11, the very first set, right? To those married, here's what he says. He says, what I want you to do is, I want, no, excuse me, the the first set is in eight and nine. The unmarried, right? The unmarried in verses eight and nine. So what he says to them is, this could be all unmarried people, this could be widows and widowers, doesn't matter, here's his teaching here. Stay unmarried like me. 
The exception is if you burn with passion. See that in verse nine? But if you cannot control, if they cannot control themselves, they should marry for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. So that's what he says. In 10 through 16, he gets to these different sections of married people. First, to those who are both Christians. What does he say? Wives, if you're in a Christian marriage, don't separate. Guys, if you're in a Christian marriage, don't seek divorce. The thing that you ought to seek foremost is reconciliation. So like chapter six, when they're going off to the courts and suing each other, he says, don't do that. Don't go to the courts. Don't go and take legal actions to separate this marriage right now. Seek reconciliation and turn to God and the church to help you do that. That's what we're on about here all the time. Jumping into the fray and helping you navigate the hard times to work through it and find reconciliation through the cross and gospel of Jesus Christ. But he says, if she separates, implication, if he does end up divorcing you, they should not remarry. Ah, that was just tripped us up, really. So I, I'm in a Christian marriage, and my spouse decides, I don't want a divorce, but they end up divorcing me. I didn't want her to leave. She ends up leaving me. Are you telling me the Bible says we, we can't get remarried? That seems like a penalty. That seems like unfair. Why is that? Well, simply this. God still sees your relationship intact even though you have taken measures to dissolve the union. Let's work this out. Marriage is God's idea. He drew it up, he defines it, and he describes what it is. And he's saying at this point, you're still married in God's eyes. And when you break off and remarry, what you're actually doing is committing adultery. That's exactly what Jesus says in Matthew 19, verse 9. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality. So there's an, ex there's an exception here. Sexual immorality, it's a broad term. Any sex outside of the marriage except for sexual immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. Why adultery? Because God sees that man, that woman is still married to that other person. That covenant is still good before God. Unless there's been sexual immorality, that breaks the covenant, and that's a whole nother matter. So that's to both who are Christians. Don't separate, reconcile, work it out, moving to God for grace upon grace. 12 through 16, now to the others. This is the people in a mixed marriage. Paul's teaching is pretty simple. Hey, if you're in a mixed marriage, and I'm using mixed marriage to mean one's a believer, one's not, and they wanna stay in this marriage, good. Don't get duped into thinking, oh, this is gonna be bad for your new faith in Christ because you're hooked up with this unbeliever who doesn't love God and follow Christ. And you might be thinking that the better thing to do is just move on without this person. No, no, Paul says stay in it. If they're willing, stay in it. Whether it's the wife staying in it for her husband or the husband staying in it for his wife. And here's why, he says. Here's why. Because not you will, have a sanctifying effect, you are having a sanctifying effect. There's that word again, we keep running into it. Big word, we don't use it. Sanctify, to make holy, to set apart. He'll talk about in verse 16, perhaps you will be able to save this person. 
So what he's not saying is, you will save, bring this person in a right relationship. That's what God does through his spirit. But you could be an instrument that moves them in that very direction. So don't get confused into thinking that, oh, this is bad because I'm in this marriage and this spouse of mine, my husband or my wife, isn't on with Jesus and this is not going to be good. He's saying, no, actually, it's really good, but it's going the other way. You're thinking about all that's happening this way from your unbelief spouse you need to understand that Christ is in you and Christ's power in you brings great change and great grace and good things to your spouse just as it does to your little kids who are holy who are set apart it's not a guarantee but it's like a greenhouse all the conditions are right and ripe for good things to happen and for faith to grow in this marriage because of you and your response to God. Peter, we won't have a chance to look at it, but Peter talks about the same thing in chapter three of his first letter where he says this, wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be one, okay, what, they don't believe what? The word, they don't believe the gospel, they don't believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God who died for them. They may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. That's what he's talking about. So this is good news as we find ourselves in that kind of a marriage and wondering, am I making any difference? And the word says, you are. You are today, and there's no guarantees, but you just stay in it. You stay in it for the good of your spouse, for the good of your kids, and you depend upon God in this hard place. Now, if they leave, if they divorce, Unlike what he just said before, he says, you're not bound. You are free to remarry. And we're scratching our heads. So how does this go again? So the Christians who divorce, they can't get married. The person who's married to an unbeliever, that unbeliever divorces, you're free. Yeah, again, God designs it. God defines it. God describes it. At that point, he's saying the covenant relationship has been broken by the unbelieving spouse who says, I don't want in anymore. And at that point, you are free. You are not bound. You can get married. So let's just kind of review because there's a lot of things going in here. So let's just say four things by way of review in these opening 16 verses. First off, God's place is gift of sex within the fence line of covenant marriage where sexual relations are normal and to be pursued within marriage. All right? The fence line. The fence line. So here's how I like, this is the, the metaphor that always comes to mind when it comes to marriage and sex, or it comes to sex. Um, marriage is the fence line like the fence around a school playground. The kids are safe from the traffic on the streets and the cars and the things that can, can a kid play on the street? Absolutely. Can you take sex outside of the, absolutely. Can you have fun outside of that? Absolutely. You get hurt. You're gonna get hurt if you play in the streets, all right? That's what he's saying. Jesus, uh, quoting Genesis 2, talks about the place of uh, sexual intimacy at the heart of marriage. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together 
let no one separate. All right, second, are you in a Christian marriage? The teaching's clear. Stay in it, stay in it. And if it's hard right now, seek reconciliation. Seek reconciliation before separating and divorcing. You're married to an unbeliever, third? Stay there and believe God's gonna use you for good. Now, let me just say something before we move on. These are general principles that need to apply to all kinds of varying situations. So as a pastor for over 30 years, I've heard a lot of different scenarios, including abuse. So I just, I want you to know if you're in this kind of a situation, um, women, I, I want you to know that if you came to me, or if you came to one of the pastors, and your life is being physically threatened, and all the other ways that things could happen, it doesn't mean we're gonna say, well, the Bible says you need to stay in it and seek to reconcile. And every other night, someone in your family's drunk and holding a loaded gun and waving it around when kids are, so just understand, these are the general teachings you're in this marriage, don't take the quick and easy, which is the norm of the day. Quick and easy, this is, this is messed up, this is wrong, I'm out of here. Seek reconciliation, but of course there'll be situations that we will have to address under God's wisdom and advice of godly leadership to understand what to do. The final thing, number four, is if you're an unbelieving spouse left you, you are free, if they died, you're free to remarry. All right, so that's Paul on marriage and divorce and remarrying in those situations. Now we come to this bridge, the 17 through 24. And um, what he's gonna do, he's gonna repeat this phrase twice. You'll see it in 20. Each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Go down to 24. Brothers and sisters, each person is responsible to God, should remain in the situation they were when God called them. He's talking about being circumcised or being a Gentile uh, or, or being Jewish or, or, or being a slave or a freed slave. He's talking about that. He's gonna talk about being single or married. And his point here that holds these two sections of married people and single is the truth and the, and the principle that's in verse 17. Nevertheless, each person should live, literally walk as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them just as God has called them. So you're married and you want out, you single and you wanna be married or whatever the circumstance, if you're making the change of address your focus, it's wrong, he says. In whatever God's called you to, as a married person in a hard marriage, as a single person wanting to get married, or whatever in between of those. He said, make it your aim in the hard place that you're at today to live for God in that place, to let God use that hard place to transform you and you to transform that place. Make that your focus way more than, I gotta get out of here. I've got to change my life. I've got to turn the page. New book, new chapter, put a new reel on the film projector. He says, no, make that your focus. So now we're ready to get into his application of that principle and now the teachings towards those who are single. So uh, have you ever heard these as a single person today or maybe not long ago you heard these? You're going to make someone really happy. 
I just don't understand how a great person like you isn't married yet. I'm praying for you. The Lord's got just the right guy for you. It's too bad they're not married. Hmm. Wonder why. What's a nice girl like you doing unmarried? What you need is a good wife. Hey, let me introduce to you my friend Matt. He's single. Here's what my hunch is. That the church might be the hardest place to live as a single person in all of culture today. It's a really wild thought that the church, my guess is the church might be one of the most difficult places to be a single. And here's why. The church has a huge high view of marriage. And the church has a very deficient view of singleness. It's good to have a high view of marriage. It is not good to have. That's not biblical. When God sent his son into this world, it wasn't in his good purposes and plans for him to be married. Sometimes we forget that. Jesus was never married. Sometimes we forget this. Jesus never had sex. Sometimes we forget that. And what Paul's going to do, and we need to get around it as singles and the rest of us to celebrate the gift, is what he calls it, of singleness. And Paul does this, and then with singleness, he does this. He'll say in verse 38, actually, because of the added opportunities you have to leverage your station in life as a single person for the kingdom, it's far better. It's even better. So he goes from here to here. And Door Creek, individually, corporately, we need to go to here and here, as the word calls us, right? So um, here's the teaching. Let's start in verse 25. Now about virgins. So a virgin would be unmarried woman, unmarried male, someone who's not been involved sexually. I have no command from the Lord. What's he saying? I'm not referencing this teaching back to Christ's teaching. He's not saying, this isn't a command, so don't worry about it, all right? But I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, very likely a famine or something like it, I think that it's good for a man to remain as he is. So I say a famine because there's records in the first century that there was a great famine that was devastating uh, the whole Roman Empire. Remain as he is, verse 27. Are you pledged to a, merit, to a woman? That is, are you engaged? And their betrothal was way different than our engagement. And actually, to break a betrothal would be to file for divorce. Remember, that's the whole Joseph Mary thing in Luke 2. Are you pledged to a woman? Are you engaged? Do not seek to be released. Don't break off your engagement. Are you free from such a commitment? Are you not? Well, don't look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles. The same word Jesus uses in the gospel. He said, in this world, you will have many tribulations or trials. But, but don't forget, if you marry, you will face troubles in this life. And I want to spare you this. So people who are married or get married have troubles. So here's the teaching. You engaged? Stay the course. You don't have to break it up. You're not? 
I'm going to ask you to consider not pursuing that right now because of the present circumstances. And he's going to go on to talk about the imminent return of Christ, which he thought was right around the corner 2,000 years ago, the Apostle Paul. Not a bad thing to think like Jesus could return today. That's how we should think as Christians. But he was thinking that, and he's the Apostle Paul. He like wrote most of the New Testament. And he thought it was true 2,000 years ago. All right? So he says, in light of all that, you know, here's what I would say. But if you're going to get married, I just, truth in advertising, it's hard. There's going to be troubles. There's going to be cares and burdens that you bear. He talks about those in verse 33. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. Key concept here. Divided interests. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs, not the world's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. So a married person, see it on the slide, has divided loyalties, divided devotion, divided responsibilities and interests, their family and God. Neither of them are wrong, but they're on their plate because you're in a marriage. And if you have children, you have responsibilities to your spouse and to your kids. The single person, undivided devotion because they don't have that. Now here's the caveat. Just because you're single doesn't mean you have undivided devotion for God. But it's there, it's waiting for you. You could be just as distracted as the next person who's married with eight kids. It's just different things that are distracting. and awkward. But, the, but your station in life as a single person is positioning you to take this gift, not a curse, and leverage it for the kingdom. So here's how I think about it, just by way of illustration. So uh, Lori and I, one of our first dates was a bike ride. Uh, right about this time of year, up in lakes around the cities, Twin Cities. Great. We get married. We got bikes. We're bike riding. We have our first child, Laura, and we're bike riding. All we needed once she was able to sit up is to get that little kid's seat behind my seat and get her that little marshmallow um, bike helmet, and off we went, Laurie and I, no problem. We are just cruising all around the bike paths of, of Wheaton and, and uh, Dane, uh, DuPage County. So Bridget comes along. And okay, no problem, we buy the bugger thing. And so we got the two girls in, in the bugger. And then Claire comes, and um, I think at one point you've got, you've got people in the bugger, and Laura may have the, the training wheels. Oh, now that, that, just, changed the, that just changed the whole <laughs> configuration. Now everything just slowed down. So then the two boys come, and you've got configurations of mom and dad on bikes, one of the kids in a bike seat, a couple in the bugger, and then a couple, you know, one's maybe on training wheels, one's ready to go faster, faster, and, you know, and then there's breakdowns, right? So one of the kids in the buggers fall asleep, and the other kid's going, get off me, get me. So then you got to stop and do that, and then one of them lost their pacifier. Are you kidding me? This is an emergency. We've got to find the pacifier. And then there's the diaper thing. And like, when it's wafting on the, okay, you know what I mean. So meanwhile, here's this slow parade of the my fairs that at one point was nimble and we're cruising that now has, it's a joyful parade, but it's slow. You know, and then there's these people on their road bikes and man, they're just, you know, they're going, I can go this way. I can go that way. I can do this. See that, that's to me, you get it? 
There's no, that is a beautiful thing to have a slow bike ride with five kids. Beautiful thing. <laughs> but you know what? We weren't in the same place to do the same things as that person on the road bike. That's what he's saying here. That's what he's saying, that the added responsibilities, in a sense, slow down and narrow our scope. It doesn't mean we can't be used for God. Of course it can be used for God. But we don't have the added capacity in our station of life to do the things that a single person, you may not be doing it, but it's there. It's a gift to receive and a leverage for God to make that greater kingdom impact. So I think of having lunch with Marion Hovey. She came back. She wasn't a, a supported missionary of our church in Wheaton, but she came back and she settled into Wheaton. And she's just this radiant, godly woman with this really pleasant smile. I went, I want to meet Marion Hovey. I said, Marion, would you be free to do lunch this week? And so we got together and she brought pictures and she told me how God called her to be a missionary when she was young, that she never married and for 40 plus years, something around that, she was a missionary and gave herself to Japan. She, I, I couldn't believe this. She tells me that she planted 10 churches. So I'm thinking, well, those are probably pretty small. And then she starts showing me the pictures of churches that are in the hundreds. So she's like the Apostle Paul. She was planting the seeds of the gospel and watering those seeds. And God was growing churches, 10 churches. And she's like the Apostle Paul when she goes, he's the matriarch of all those churches. She's going to be welcomed in heaven by all these people that she was part of, of leading to Christ because she leveraged the gift. She leveraged the gift. And that's what God is asking us to do as singles. And that's how God is asking us to think about singleness. It's a gift. We don't want to waste this gift. And at the same time, if single, you want to get married, hey, don't feel guilty like, ooh, I know this, like, this singleness gift for God. All of life is like super spiritual. No, it's not super spiritual. It's giving you a unique opportunity to make a huge kingdom difference. And if God lays it on your heart to be married and raise a family, that's okay. Don't feel guilty about that, but don't rush into that. And if your heart as a Christ follower is to make a difference in this world, and you make sure you're hooked up, you're married to a person who shares that. How do you know? There are too many marriages happen where, well, I, I thought he went to church. She said this. Let me, let me just show you these, these commitments that are ours as a church. We call them our seven values. These commitments can actually help you ferret out. How do I know this person is really on with Jesus Christ? Are they living a life of worship? In other words, does Christ have complete sway and authority in every area of their life? Or are there things that they're holding back on? Are they really digging into God's word? Do they have a hunger for God's word? Are they committed to centering their life on God's truth? Are they connected to community? Are they in relationship with other believers? Is their life living and sharing out the good news, this joyful witness? Is there a sense of compassion for people in need? Does that stir their heart? Does it have anything to do with their life? Are, there, are they growing? Do they want to be prepared, intentional training? Are they a person of prayer and growing in these things? I mean, these can be really important. So don't feel guilty. And if you marry, make sure, verse 39 says, that you marry in the Lord. 
meaning another person who shares your love for Christ and his mission. So let's bring it home. Where are you at in life? What are you praying for? What are you looking for? An out? A transfer from what's hard right now? Are you leaning into God and saying, God, you are the God of all grace. I need a whole lot more to stay in this hard place, to be transformed by this hard place, and to be an agent of change in this hard place. Where are you at? In or out? Who's shaping our view of sex? What's shaping our view of sex? If Hollywood does, if the internet does, if the novels do, if our friends do, depending on who they are, it may easily lead us way, way down the wrong path. We need to trust that God has written these things for our joy. That the one in whom there are eternal pleasures is has put the fence line around it for our good and enjoyment. And trust him. Trust him that this is a good word. And when it comes to our marriage, I want to ask you this question. What season is your marriage in? Winter? Spring? Summer? Fall? And if it's in winter, like it's just happening here soon, right? If it's in winter, and maybe you say, yeah, this has been winter for a long time, Mark. It's been winter for a long time. Here, here's what I want to say. Marriages have seasons. And when you say winter, I'm not going to say, no, it's really spring. But I want to remind you what you're going to do this winter. And it's happening right now. I'm looking through the windows. Some trees have leaves, some don't. Some of our shrubs have leaves. Pretty soon all the fiery red burning bushes are just going to be sticks and stalks and they're going to get pretty brittle. But I guarantee you, if you've owned that bush for a while, you're not digging it out at that point. You're not going to throw it on the compost. You're not going to toss it on the parkway. Why? Because you understand it's winter. And spring's coming. And the spring that comes is through the power of, the God, of God who raises dead things to life. Who takes a valley full of dry bones and makes them dance. The God of resurrection can resurrect your marriage. He doesn't want to take you back to where you were. Because my guess is you're not wanting to go back there. He can take you where he meant you to be all along that you deeply desire. And the change of address is the quick solution in our minds. It's not the right one most of the time. Trust God. Trust God. Lean on Christian brothers and sisters who are godly pastors, Christian counselors. And here's, here's the simple, incredibly difficult uh, recipe that I've seen dead marriages come to life many, many a time. It's this. My challenge is to the husband. Keep your eye on Christ. Get into his word. Listen to him. And just say, I want to do what your word tells me to do. Wife, get your eyes on Christ. 
you listen to Christ, you follow his word and do whatever his word tells you to do through the power of the spirit. And as you both have your focus there, the cross and the gospel works through all the hard things of our past, all the challenges of our present, and gives us great hope in the future. And that's simple, it's incredibly difficult, but I've seen it happen time and time again. The last application question is, so a, a message like this, we're talking about sex, we're talking about divorce, we're talking about marriage, we're talking about singleness. Uh, if one of those didn't get you, I don't know, you may not have a pulse this morning, but man, those are, those are guilt-inducing categories. So my question is, what are you doing with your guilt? And we've all been there where we've fallen short of God's beautiful standard in our lives in walking in relationships and handling our passions that are God-given, but they lead us astray. What do we do with that? Well, if you're, if you're not a Christ follower, you know this by now. There's nothing you can do to get rid of it. But that's why Christ died. And that's the hope of the gospel, that what Jesus did on the cross paid the penalty for all the junk in our past. He frees us. He forgives us. He gives us the power to live for him today, the hope to live for him forever. And you turn to God. And you trust in Christ and his provision for you. And we go, oh man, I've been there, I've done that, but I'm still racked with guilt. Well, yeah, because sometimes we're still dealing with the consequences. You're forgiven from the acts? Doesn't mean, oh, and all the consequences, I just, no, no, that's God's word and his world always work out. So we do reap what we sow. And if we're dealing with these hard consequences that may remind us of the guilty actions of the past, if we've got these accusations coming from the enemy that goes, you are such a scumbag, my fair. Remember, remember, and all we can do is go, yeah, you're right. He's not even lying at this point. He's just bringing it back up. That what you do with those guilty feelings is you take them, whether it's from yourself, from your circumstances, from the enemy, you grab them and you do, I've never done judo, but I know this is how it works, so trust me. <laughs> you take them like judo and you take the force of it, right? And you do this. And where do you send it? To the cross, to the cross, to the cross. That's right. That's what I did. But Christ paid for that. And I'm forgiven and I'm moving forward today in his grace and the power of his spirit to live for God in this present hard place. Go back to 611 with this we close because he says his very thing. And that is what some of you were. And one of the things that he mentions along with many others was sexual immorality. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were declared righteous, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not in your works, not in your acts, but in Christ and what he's done for you. And that by the spirit of our God, applied by the spirit to our hearts so that we're forgiven. We've been set apart. We're in a right place before God. Let's pray. And so, Father God, we bring our guilt and shame to your son who died to free us from that, to wash away our guilt, to make us new. We trust you, Lord Jesus, for forgiveness and peace, for grace for that which is hard in our present situation. Give us grace upon grace that we might remain in that situation and live for you in a God-honoring way.
Use what's hard in our life to make us more like Christ. Use us in that hard place to point others to him. Help us to take you at your word that this is a good word. Help us not to flinch. Lord, we celebrate those who are single in our church. We are grateful for how they are living out their singleness. And we pray that you would bless them and that you would use them as mighty instruments in this world for your work until you come or call us home. In Christ's name we pray, amen.